worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Cardio nerds, Dan and Kareen here. Thanks for tuning in. We had such a blast recording episode seven, our case discussion on cardiac amyloidosis. If you haven't already, check it out. It lays the groundwork for episodes eight and nine. Amit's pulse check in episode eight with Dr. Paul Kremer at the Cleveland Clinic was riveting. Today, we will continue with our third episode in the Cardiac Amyloid series and hear from two fabulous Hopkins cardiologists, Dr. Virginia Hahn and Dr. Jobin Vaishnav. But before we jump in, remember this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The goal is to simply enjoy learning more about cardiology directly from experts like our guests today. Kareen and Dan here. We are so excited to highlight one of our star co-fellows and my sister from another mista, Virginia Hahn. Dr. Hahn is a fourth-year cardiology fellow here at Hopkins. She went to medical school at University of Pennsylvania, where she also completed her medicine residency, and then moved to Hopkins for a cardiology fellowship after a one-year hiatus as an ICU hospitalist. During fellowship, she completed two years on the NIH T32 training grant and one year as an absolutely fabulous chief fellow. Just fabulous. She's passionate about translational heart failure research and has really stood apart among her peers with regards to what she's been able to accomplish, all while mothering two young children during training. That's right, Virginia. We are so excited to have you. I actually have known Virginia for many years. Uh, when I was interviewing for residency spots, she interviewed me at UPenn, and that's where we met first. But then during residency, she was just a fabulous consultant, and we leaned on her heavily to help us sort through cardiovascular care for our patients during residency. Virginia, this is an absolute treat. Also, Virginia provided us with our first flutter moment of the show. Definitely check it out. It's on episode three, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Definitely worth a listen. Thank you guys so much. I'm so excited to talk with you today. And thanks for making me sound so good. It is easy. Easy. Effortless. (laughs) Done. Um, Well, we're so excited to have you. Uh, As you know, our most recent Cardio Nerds podcast episode really highlighted cardiac amyloid. And so we thought this would be a great opportunity to talk further about some of the research that you've been doing with regards to HFPEF and deep phenotyping of HFPEF patients, uh, and particularly some of the discoveries you've made with regards to cardiac amyloid. Awesome. So first, I will highlight my two mentors. So my basic science mentor is David Cass, who I've known for about a decade. And uh, my clinical heart failure mentor is Kavita Sharma, who is our section chief in heart failure here at Hopkins. And they work together to establish a clinical and research HFPEF program um, about five years ago. And Kavita started getting endomyocardial biopsies from these patients, um, both for clinical reasons to evaluate for amyloid and um, also myocarditis and fibrosis, um, inflammation, 
And then also to use some pieces of tissue for research purposes. So we have a variety of molecular analyses that we're working on now um, as part of our deep phenotyping and HEFPEF project. But because of the prevalence of amyloid um, in our HEFPEF cohort, we've actually now started um, looking at the overlap in protein kinase G and protein quality control in amyloid. Um, so we've actually received a couple of foundation grants to further that work. We have a, a paper now that I've presented the abstract a couple of at a couple of meetings, and we just submitted the paper. And here we really focus on the first 108 HEFPEF patients. So these are patients who are deemed to have HEFPEF based on seeing a provider in clinic um, who is an advanced heart failure specialist. So these patients, really the other causes of dyspnea and lower extremity edema are um, excluded. So these patients are all referred to the cardiac catheterization lab um, for invasive hemodynamics and endomyocardial biopsy. And in the first 108, um, 15 of them, or 14%, had cardiac amyloid. And the vast majority of these patients had transthyretin, um, which was in 73%. So out of those 11 that had transthyretin cardiac amyloid, seven of them were wild type and four were mutant. And how many of these patients were known to have or presumed to have amyloid prior to biopsy? Yeah, so about half of them were suspected to have amyloid based on clinical screening or clinical gestalt. None of them were known to have amyloid. We actually had two really interesting cases. One was a patient who had multiple myeloma um, whose amyloid turned out to be wild-type transthyretin, which we would have never figured out unless we had biopsied him. And we had one person who actually had a negative nuclear uh, pyrophosphate scan, but the person had a familial history of amyloid neuropathy. And so because the suspicion was high, we biopsied that person and that person did turn out to have um, uh, hereditary TTR. So it is difficult to determine how many would be clinically suspected in other settings because we are a tertiary referral center, but it was about half. And when we look at expert screening guidelines, just under half of our patients would actually not have been captured based on those screening guidelines because they would have been too young and the hypertrophy would not have been severe enough. Um, the other really interesting thing we found is that um, strain imaging, so relative apical sparing on strain, meaning that the apex contracts better than the base of the heart, is a hallmark of cardiac amyloid. And actually, we just in the echo lab yesterday had a case like this. But it turns out that this is more often seen in patients with cardiac amyloid who have reduced ejection fraction. And when you actually read the papers about this data, patients with HEFPEF, it's known that this marker is less sensitive when the patient has heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So we found that um, it was not sensitive in those patients. Oh, because I mean, that makes sense because strain is really detecting early signs of contractility issues. Totally. And these patients have, have PEF. Right. So at least grossly, they don't have uh, contractility issues or, or systolic dysfunction. So yeah. that's very interesting. Are there yeah. other markers on ECHO that are more specific to HEFPEF and amyloid? Yes. So when you compare the groups, non-amyloid HEFPEF versus amyloid HEFPEF, they did have higher LV mass. Um, one of the challenges is now, uh, because our patient population have become more and more obese, is just how we normalize that. 
um, but the the LV mass was higher. Um, and then two other interesting things that we found were that troponin and uh, NT-proBNP were significantly higher in the amyloid patients. If you look at the troponin particularly, it was really striking the difference between the number of patients with a detectable troponin level in the amyloids versus the heft. And the troponin and BNP elevation is not different among different amyloid subtypes? You know, that's something that we didn't look at. That's a really great question. The subgroups get pretty small. Um, AL, we had three patients, and then we did have one patient with AA amyloid. So we haven't looked at that, but that's a good idea. We do know that troponin and BNP are predictive of outcomes in ALA amyloid. Did you guys give thought, since you know you had these cases, obviously they're outliers where your nuclear study was negative or patient with multiple myeloma yeah, and TTR, TTR yeah. um, was there any like thought as to how to not miss those types of folks? Yeah, so we talked about creating some kind of score. Was there a way where we could create an, an algorithm so that you wouldn't miss any of the amyloid cases? And we were not able to do that because there were these outliers. I think we're limited by the small numbers. So one thing that actually Jobin is working on with Kavita is to develop some kind of scoring system that would at least guide you or narrow down the patients who need screening. And we do have great non-invasive screening, um, but from this study, we've seen that if your clinical suspicion is high and the nuclear study is negative, then feel you should feel comfortable going forward for biopsy. A positive nuclear study, you're done, right? You have the diagnosis. The nuclear scans are only for transthyretin amyloid. So if you have somebody with AL and you're not sure if the heart is involved or not, then you would need to go to biopsy. Right. And the other thing to keep in mind, there was a pretty high-profile paper out of the Mayo group that was an autopsy study that gets quoted a lot because 19% of their HFPEF patients had amyloid. But you have to actually read the paper to see that many of the patients had mild infiltration of amyloid that would not account for clinical cardiac Mm -hmm. amyloidosis. Mm -hmm. And so we actually made it a criteria that you had to have at least moderate infiltration, interstitial infiltration with amyloid to be diagnosed as cardiac amyloidosis. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, among those patients that you identified cardiac amyloid on biopsy, can you tell us a little bit about the features of those patients with regards to um, sex and comorbid conditions, age? Were there any patterns that you noticed? Yes. So um, in all of the patients, our median age was 66. So this is actually relatively young compared to the other papers that have looked at prevalence of amyloid and HFPEF. The median age of the non-amyloid HFPEF was 65, whereas the median age of the cardiac amyloid HFPEF patients was 74. So the sex distribution was... um, 60% female in the non-amyloid HFPEF and 40% female in the cardiac amyloid group. Um, And remember, these are all cardiac amyloid who have a preserved ejection fraction above 50%. Um, In terms of the racial distribution, so this is actually a strength of our study that we've included so many um, self-identified black patients who are often not included in heart failure research. Um, So 60% of our non-amyloid HFPEFs were African-American self-identified, and 40% of our cardiac amyloid patients were. So this was actually surprising because 
the most prevalent uh, mutation in TTR in the United States, in North America, is the valine to isoleucine at the 122 position. And this is found in 4% of self-identified African-Americans, yet it has incomplete penetrance, and we don't really understand why. Um, and it turns out that many of our African-American patients here at Hopkins have HEFPEF. Um, so we didn't see a racial difference, which we were surprised by. I'll just highlight differences. So the systolic blood pressure tended to be lower in the amyloid patients, 125 versus 141. The BMI tended to be lower, which was a median of 29 in the cardiac amyloid group versus 30, uh, 38 in the HEFPEF group. Uh, that's very interesting. Because as, as uh, weight is obviously a risk factor for HEFPEF yes, proper. Yes, absolutely. But the interesting thing is, you know, the amyloid patients... Still, there are many who are overweight and obese. Um, so as the demographics are changing, you know, just because somebody is overweight or obese, that doesn't exclude them from having amyloid. And then otherwise, we found more hypertension and more diabetes in the HEFPEF patients. Um, and then, as I said before, the troponin and the BNP were higher in the amyloid group. Specifically, Two-thirds of the amyloid patients had a troponin that was above the normal range, whereas only 12% of the HEFPEF patients did. And that makes sense because you use troponin and BNP in the state Mayo staging for AL. For AL, yeah. Right. There's not as much data for using troponin and BNP as screening for TTR. Anything else from your paper that you want to highlight? Uh, so we actually looked at clinical histology in non-amyloid HEFPEF as well, and it was it was actually surprising that um, while we found fibrosis and hypertrophy in most of the patients, most of the time it was mild. Um, so we're in non-amyloid in non-amyloid HEFPEF. Um, so part of the reason that this whole effort was started was to really understand the mechanisms of HEFPEF and really drill down into the myocardial phenotypes. We have clinical phenotypes in our heads, but we don't really know if the myocardial mechanisms are any different. So this this is work that is ongoing. Um, we did transcriptomics in a large number of these patients, and that paper is being prepared now. Thanks again for everything, and thanks again for your contributions to this field, which is growing and we're learning more and more with every passing year. You are obviously a phenomenal clinician scientist. Uh, you're just a, a clinical role model for us, and you basically really build both worlds, that research world and the clinical world. And I'm just wondering, how do you juggle the two, and how do you remain so excellent at both at the same time? Um, thank you. All while First. wearing cheetah boots. All while wearing cheetah boots. <laughs> Um, so, you know, I feel the same stress that I think other people do, just figuring out how to, how to divide your time between these two worlds. I think, you know, it's true that you really, when you're doing one thing, it means that you're not doing something else. So I really try to focus completely on what I'm doing at that moment in time. So when I am on the cath rotation, I'm 100% in the cath lab, and I really try to tune out all of the other distractions. And, you know, something my husband told me when I asked him he how he was such a great resident, not just on his own service, but when he rotated on other services. And he just looked at me and said, it's very simple. Just always do what's right for the patient. So, you know, I try to 
give it my all when I'm on these clinical rotations. And then when I'm working on my rich search, I try to really focus on that and be really protective of that time. I also think that it is so important. I mean, you spend a decade of your life training to be a doctor. You have to do research that leverages your clinical skills. Um, so do research that could not be done by somebody who's not a physician. Um, and I think that we stress a lot about not having the same time that the PhDs have. Um, but in working with several basic science PhDs and um, engineering PhDs, they really don't have the same clinical context we do. I mean, the whole purpose of research is to take care, better care of patients. So you don't know where the holes are unless you're actually doing it. And we absolutely need each other. So these foundation grants to study amyloid, I basically worked on with a junior faculty member here named Mark Ronick. Um, and you know, I think this is the future. We will have to learn how to do team science, but don't spend a decade of your life busting your butt. I mean, most of the people listening to this are trainees who are in the trenches. You don't want this to be time that you're not leveraging in your research. So that's really important. And that's one reason why when I went back to the lab, I told David, I really want to focus on human tissue and human mechanisms. Well, thank you for that. That was a terrific answer. Yeah, and very inspiring. And personal. Usual. You did great. <laughs> thank you very much, folks. That's the show. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It was such a delight. Hi, everyone. Dan and Kareen back here and so excited to continue our discussion on cardiac amyloidosis with one of our heart failure colleagues here at Hopkins, Dr. Jobin Vaishnav. Jobin completed her undergraduate and medical school training at St. Louis University. She has since been at Johns Hopkins for a residency, cardiology fellowship, and advanced heart failure fellowship. Her early research pursuits were in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. From this and from her advanced heart failure training, she developed a strong clinical interest and research interest in the early diagnosis and treatment of cardiac amyloidosis, which is why she makes such a perfect person to continue our discussion on amyloid. Absolutely. Totally agree. Jobin has been a mentor to me. She's been a year ahead of me in residency and then fellowship and has been guiding me along the way. We used to share a clinic together. And when she left to pursue her heart's dreams and advanced heart failure, I uh, it was a real loss. So I used to send her Snapchats every uh, clinic day, which she ignored and probably just threw right into the trash. So Jobin, thanks so much for joining of course, the show. Thank you for having me. So we're really excited to have you and we are going to get started with with some questions that we are just dying to get your take on. First, we'd like to talk a little bit more about heart failure therapy in cardiac amyloid. So we wanted to get your opinion from a practical standpoint on the management of these patients uh, in terms of medical therapy that, you know, traditional medical therapy that we use for cardiomyopathy patients. What are sort of the do's and don'ts that are specific to cardiac amyloid. Yeah, I think that's great to discuss up front. With cardiac amyloidosis, actually like many aspects of heart failure, you know, understanding the hemodynamic derangements is probably the best way to understand why we do and why we don't treat cardiac amyloid with certain quote-unquote standard heart failure therapies. Cardiac amyloidosis, as we may know, is an infiltrative restrictive cardiomyopathy the amyloid fibril deposition leads to biventricular hypertrophy, um, and the LV is generally thick, non-dilated, and non-distensible. 
So this really does limit the heart's ability to vary its stroke volume, and there is actually kind of a fixed stroke volume um, with advanced restrictive disease. So even though the major symptom manifestation of cardiac amyloid is congestion, there is also this propensity for hypovolemia um, with overdiuresis. And importantly, the hypovolemia from overdiuresis may manifest as dizziness, lightheadedness, presyncope, syncope, does often need to be distinguished from dizziness, for example, from autonomic neuropathy. Interesting. Oh, and we know that yeah. that can be seen in as one of the manifestations of amyloid. Correct. Mm-hmm. Peripheral neuropathy is main, another major manifestation of TTR amyloid. So the hemodynamics are also, you know, why AFib is very sensitive in cardiac amyloid. There is a loss of atrial kick, a reduction in stroke volume, and this could be really consequential. And then lastly, there is also a heart rate dependency to maintain your cardiac output um, and a need to avoid certain drugs, which we'll talk about in a little bit, like beta blockers that may lower your heart rate depending on the patient. Most patients do develop congestion, though, and require initiation of loop diuretics, um, which is a mainstay of therapy. And oftentimes, pretty high doses are needed to achieve symptom relief. As I mentioned, the caveat with diuretic titration is just to be on the lookout for overdiuresis and hypovolemia. Symptoms that patients will report if they are experiencing this are lightheadedness, dizziness, presyncope, syncope. They may have an AKI in their labs or have um, lower than baseline blood pressures in this case. What may be tricky is distinguishing the symptoms of lightheadedness and dizziness from another common comorbidity in amyloid patients, which is autonomic neuropathy which can also manifest as lightheadedness and dizziness, presyncope and syncope. Thiazide diuretics, in particular metolazone, is sometimes needed as a booster. And then if a patient has good enough renal function, and especially with hypokalemia, I do try to add on spironolactone. I think one important lesson I've learned, just owing to the restrictive nature of the disease, and one of my you know, clinical and hemodynamic mentors, Dr. Witstein, taught me this early on, is you may never actually normalize the JVP or you know, have normal filling pressures in patients with, with cardiac amyloidosis. Patients are dependent on filling pressures to maintain their stroke volume. So with diuretic titration, what I'm really aiming for is symptom relief and decongestion more than anything. That's really interesting, Jobin. What I'm hearing from you is that diuretics are really the mainstay of therapy in treating cardiac amyloid really to get to decrease in congestion and symptom management, which is counter to what we're traditionally thought with cardiomyopathy, where our mainstay is, you know, really trying to get them on goal-directed therapy or really pushing beta blockers, ACE inhibitors. Here, you're really reaching for diuretics first. And, and so your spironolactone, for example, is not necessarily from the guideline-directed therapy perspective, but more for to help normalize the potassium so patients don't have to take, you know, just like bucket loads of potassium. Yeah, that's correct. So the other standard therapies that you mentioned, RAS inhibition, beta blockade, that, you know, we are really trying to push on our dilated cardiomyopathy patients, have not shown similar efficacy in cardiac amyloidosis patients. And again, this really goes back to the underlying hemodynamics and the concept of having a relatively fixed stroke volume. So unlike dilated cardiomyopathy, where you vasodilate and atrial reduce and increase your cardiac output, there's really not this ability in amyloid. And instead, you just kind of potentiate hypotension a lot of the time. 
Beta blockers can do the same, um, you know, again, related to the negative inotropy and chronotropy. Nonetheless, there are definitely patients who have come to me on clinic. They're hypertensive with cardiac amyloid. They're on ACE inhibitor or they're on beta blocker because of a history of AFib and tolerating these medications fine. So in these cases, I usually don't stop the drug but definitely regularly monitor symptoms and just have a low threshold to discontinue. And related to this, I think one useful clinical pearl to throw out there in the diagnosis of cardiac amyloidosis is, you know, you have a heart failure patient diagnosed in the hospital. Of course, everyone wants to start guideline-directed medical therapy, and you may not have diagnosed amyloidosis at this point. Well, a clue that this may be amyloid is if a patient tanks when you start low-dose beta blocker or ACE inhibitor, um, and it should just prompt you to think about if that is what's going on in the etiology. So that was a great summary of traditional cardiac medications and how they differ in the in the treatment of cardiac amyloid. But what's really exciting about this particular disease entity has been, I think, the advent of novel therapies, particularly for TTR, which is why there is now such a greater push to diagnose this disease at an earlier time now that we have a therapy. Um, we'd love to hear more from you about the drugs that have been developed that are sort of in the pipeline, um, particularly the ATTRACK trial that came out in New England Journal in 2018 looking at Tefamidus. Yeah, I think this is um, what's incredibly exciting about diagnosing and treating amyloid in this era. Um, there's just been a large surge of um, disease-modifying therapy. Before we kind of dive into tefamidus and attract, you know, I think it's important to review what we're targeting here, which is the transthyretin protein. Uh, transthyretin, it's a transport protein. It's synthesized in the liver, and um, it comes together to form a tetramer, just kind of like a four-leaf clover in its natural state. So with TTR, cardiac Transthyretin, the issue is it destabilizes and dissociates into monomers, misfolds, and then deposits a, as amyloid fibrils um, in various organs, but as we talked about, particularly the heart and the peripheral nervous system. Um, so this can happen either due to a pathogenic mutation, such as invariant TTR amyloid, or not due to a genetic mutation in its natural state, which is called wild-type TTR amyloid. So all the differing therapies that have emerged in the past few years target different parts of this pathogenic pathway by either suppressing TTR formation, in the case of tefamidus and others, stabilizing the TTR tetramer, or by degrading the amyloid fibrils that have already deposited. Moving on to tefamidus, so it's a TTR stabilizer, and as of 2019, you know, after a tract, it was kind of fast-tracked. It's the only FDA-approved therapy for the treatment of cardiac amyloidosis. The ATTRACT trial was a phase three clinical trial. It looked at tefamidus versus placebo in both variant and wild-type TTR cardiac amyloid patients. Um, it's a once-a-day PO medication, and mechanistically, it works by binding the TTR tetramer with a very high affinity, and so it basically inhibits a step where the um, tetramer dissociates into monomers, which is the rate-limiting mm. step of that cascade. So attract, you know, it was international, placebo-controlled, like I mentioned, and patients enrolled either had New York Heart Association class 1 to 3 heart failure, so the trial did exclude class 4 heart failure patients. The primary endpoint was mortality and cardiovascular hospitalizations, but key secondary endpoints were improvement in um, the KCCQ and six-minute walk tests. 
What's the KCCQ? um, It's the Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire, basically focused on quality of life. Really commonly used in all heart failure trials. Thank you, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I was asking for the audience, okay? (laughs) Don't look at me like I'm so stupid. Heart failure people. (laughs) Uh, So commonly talked about with the ATTRACT trial is their really unique statistical method for analysis. So I thought we should mention it here. It's the Finkelstein Schoenfeld method. Oh, I love this method. (laughs) Tell me, tell me more. It calculates a win ratio. Um, but really, I, you know, I think this method capitalizes on rare disease and a small cohort. It really increases sensitivity and power of the trial endpoints um, and prioritize the importance of mortality and morbidity. So, in, you know, usually composite endpoints, you'll look at all of them together. Finkelstein Schoenfeld is hierarchical, so it'll prioritize death, and then it like mm. then you it's like a ladder that you go up for endpoints. So it allows you to sort of say this endpoint is more important than this endpoint, etc. You're crushing your stats class. Oh. <laughs> no, we didn't learn this in stats, but I love this method. Oh, very good. I'm not cutting that out. <laughs> that you love the method. You're gonna be a real nerd now. <laughs> So in terms of trial endpoints, Tefamidus was shown to reduce mortality by 30% compared to placebo. Um, You know, that generated a number needed to treat of about 7.5 just to prevent one death. Hospitalizations, cardiovascular hospitalizations, were reduced by 32%. Number needed to treat correlating with that is four to prevent one hospitalization. I think one important lesson we can take home um, from a tract is that earlier diagnosis and earlier treatment is way better. Uh, a subgroup analysis showed much more benefit in the class one to two New York Heart Association um, patients compared to class three in mortality and cardiovascular hospitalizations. And again, class four patients weren't even enrolled. And also kind of related to this notion of earlier treatment and earlier diagnosis is that Um, It did take a little while for the benefit to be seen. So the survival curve split at about 18 months, um, and in terms of heart failure hospitalizations, the curve diverges at about nine months. Um, So you can't have a super sick patient that you're starting on because they need to live a while to see the benefit from this drug. Jobin, that was a really great overview of the ATTRACT trial, and it will be really exciting to see how the use of tefamidus pans out in day-to-day clinical practice. What has been your experience thus far with this drug? I think it's great to be able to offer therapy to my patients with cardiac amyloidosis, so I'm in general very excited about it. I think um, besides being able to offer therapy, another major advantage is that it's really safe and well-tolerated. You know, the trial itself had very few adverse events, and, and in clinical practice, I haven't had a patient need to come off drug because of an intolerance or side effect. The big disadvantage, which has been extensively discussed, you know, in in nationwide, international, on an international level, is the cost. Because amyloid was classified as a rare disease, the drug was costed as such, and it can cost on average of uh, $250,000 per year. And it's by far the most expensive cardiovascular drug on the market. So I think there really needs to be headway made um, in this front especially if we diagnose amyloid in more and more patients as we expect to do so, it will no longer be the rare disease that we have classified it as. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so I know Tefamidus sort of at this point is the coolest kid on the block, the one that we probably hear about the most, but tell us about the other TTR stabilizers. 
Yeah, there are um, other stabilizers that are uh, hopefully coming down the pipeline. AJT10 um, was recently published about in a phase two clinical trial, um, and there's an ongoing phase three clinical trial. And the mechanism is interesting. It, it mimics a mutation that has been found to be a super stabilizer of TTR. Uh, in the phase two clinical trial, it was deemed safe and did reduce the rate of that tetrameric dissociation that we talked about was kind of this integral step in the cascade in both mutant and wild type uh, TTR amyloid. So it'll be exciting to see what comes of further trial data. It's an oral drug as well, which is another advantage. And um, diflunazole is kind of the old kid on the block, I guess. It's an NSAID and kind of a, a non-selective TTR stabilizer. It's shown modest benefit in cardiomyopathy and has been shown to slow progression of neurologic impairment in those affected by neuropathy. You know, I think the use in um, cardiac amyloid is a bit controversial um, because of the long-term side effects of NSAID use. We tell all of our patients avoid NSAIDs, all of our patients with heart failure to avoid NSAIDs, and that has been shown with difluzinol, you know, reduction in GFR and volume retention. So it has to be a select cohort that um, that gets this drug. That's pretty important to know. So tefamidus, AG10, and difluzinol, as you mentioned, are TTR stabilizers. But what about agents that are particularly working to suppress TTR production? Yeah, um, this has been an exciting time for amyloid as well. Um, there have been two drugs approved relatively recently for ATTR peripheral neuropathy and that are actively being studied for cardiomyopathy and both aim to suppress TTR production. The first of those is patisseran or on patro and it was studied for neuropathy in the Apollo trial. The mechanism of patisseran, so it, it is a small interfering RNA molecule and it targets a sequence of the mRNA within TTR and that sequence is preserved in, in those with the mutant, and um, of course, it's um, effective in those with wild type. So in Apollo, there was a significant improvement in polyneuropathy. It decreased TTR levels and overall improved quality of life. Um, they did a pre-specified subgroup analysis with cardiac involvement, um, which led to the trial that I'll talk about, but that showed improvement in cardiac structure and function, so decreased LV wall thickness, you know, improvement in LV strain, and a reduction in NT ProBMP. So patients in Apollo only had hereditary ATTR. Apollo B is a clinical trial that is ongoing, and that will look at patisseran in patients with cardiac amyloid, both wild type and hereditary. The main side effect and kind of one of the things to note about patisseran is it is an IV infusion, and so the main adverse mm. um, event was infusion site reaction. The other one I'll mention that has been approved for amyloid per, um, for ATTR peripheral neuropathy is inotericin. It's an antisense oligonucleotide, and it binds TTR RNA as well and leads to its degradation. This drug was studied in the neuro-TTR trial, and in that trial, about 60% of patients did have cardiac involvement, but the results weren't powered to measure cardiovascular effects. So there is also an ongoing trial of um, this drug in cardiomyopathy as well. That's pretty exciting. So these would be things that would really deter the whole disease like from the get-go. So if you identified hereditary ATTR, you can identify people who haven't even had any phenotypical manifestations. Yeah, I think importantly, you know, these drugs are not getting rid of the amyloid fibrils that have deposited. That's the last step of the pathway, the drugs that degrade the amyloid fibrils, but they do suppress production. Um, yeah, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Cool. So we've talked a lot thus far about the general cardiology uh, 
cardiac specific medications, and then a little bit more about the targeted therapies specifically for cardiac amyloid. What will be really exciting as these drugs continue to develop is hopefully improvements in the early identification of the disease and initiation of therapy earlier. As you mentioned in that Tefamidus trial, really starting the drugs earlier made a big difference. Unfortunately though, some patients do end up developing end-stage disease uh, that requires transplantation. So I'd love to hear your take as a transplant specialist, um, sort of how you manage these patients, what what goes into your thought process when you're thinking about transplanting uh, cardiac amyloid patients? Are there anything, is there anything specific that you worry about or take into consideration? Are there any other organ transplants that you consider off the bat and, you know, what sort of goes into that decision-making? Yeah, I'll say up front, um, you know, the transplant percentage in amyloid patients is a very small subset of patients who get transplanted in general. So our experience is a bit limited. Um, and earlier on, compared to later um, published data, there were worse outcomes compared to what we're seeing now. But certainly organ transplantation is something that may need to be considered in cardiac amyloidosis, both single and multi-organ. So liver transplant was kind of one of the, the first uh, considered um, I think the first liver transplant for amyloid was back in the 1990s. As we have talked about, since the protein is produced in the liver, the thought for specifically hereditary TTR amyloid is that if you replace that liver um, that's producing the mutant TTR with a brand new liver, you'll remove the mutant TTR production and decrease disease burden. It is and has been an accepted indication for hereditary TTR amyloid um, in patients with advanced neuropathy. Patients who solely undergo liver transplant cannot have significant cardiac disease. That's a contraindication. They will not do well. Uh, And unfortunately, cardiovascular complications are the leading cause of death post-transplant in post-liver transplant in in these patients. The reason is cardiac disease can still progress um, because it's been hypothesized that wild-type amyloid, which is still being produced by the liver, can stick to the mutant amyloid that's already deposited in the Uh... heart. For that reason, um, there is this risk of cardiovascular disease progression. With liver transplant, it's definitely been shown that certain mutations such as V30M carry a much better prognosis after liver transplant compared to others, and that should also be a factor. Heart liver should be considered for patients with um, hereditary amyloid who have significant cardiac disease um, at the time of transplantation consideration. Earlier, the better. I think what's been shown is that there is a high weightless mortality for patients with cardiac amyloidosis listed for heart transplant. And lastly, heart transplant has been a therapy as well for both mutant wild-type ATTR as well as AL patients. Um, with a thought behind this being TTR amyloid does take a very long time to develop to lead to symptomatic disease. And now, especially that we have disease-modifying therapy, if it's caught on biopsy, we can start early treatment. With AL, it's the same concept. We can suppress light cell production with chemotherapy and um, possibly stem cell transplant post-heart transplant. Right, because if you're just doing a sole heart transplant, you're not. there's nothing to say that you're not going to get right. amyloid deposition. You're Correct. kind of just resetting the system. Correct. Yeah, yeah you're just starting fresh. And routinely post-heart transplant, patients are getting endomyocardial biopsies for monitoring of rejection, in which case we would see the amyloid Mm -hmm. deposition early. 
So Mayo and Stanford have published the largest contemporary series on transplant outcomes in amyloid. And, you know, in general, these outcomes are compared to earlier series. I think this is probably just because we've become better at patient selection. So, you know, really eliminating patients with other organ manifestations that are severe. And um, from a treatment standpoint of AL amyloid, chemotherapy has become much more effective and well-tolerated. Oh my gosh, Jovan, that was phenomenal. Obviously. This, obviously. And we knew it would, which is why we had you on the show. Dream team. <laughs> but seriously, thanks for coming to the show. This is like a, has been incredibly helpful for us. We obviously see that you're very passionate about cardiac amyloid. And we were just wondering what makes your heart flutter about cardiac amyloid that made you dive into this and uh, take care of these patients? Yeah, you know, I kind of fell into it. I mean, I think amyloid encompasses a lot of what I love about heart failure. It's challenging physiology. It relies on very accurate and early diagnosis with a high index of clinical suspicion. Um, And from that standpoint, I think there's a lot of education to be done to, you know, with our colleagues, um, which is exciting for me. And I really appreciate the multidisciplinary approach. Um, Not only do you need a cardiologist or heart failure specialist, you need oftentimes neurology and oncology, a genetic counselor. Um, And so I love that team approach to treating um, patients with cardiac amyloidosis. I'm very excited to work with our faculty here on that in the next coming years. And I think for everyone, this is an incredibly exciting time for amyloid um, as we now have therapies that are actually treating the disease. And I think in the next few years, we'll just see a surge of these therapies that will improve outcomes and quality of life for our well-deserving patients. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, we're excited to watch you on that journey and uh, be one of those colleagues that comes for educational pearls like I did right before this uh, show. (laughs) (laughs) I curbsided, Jim, and it was amazing. (laughs) All right, that's a wrap. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. So it's time to make like an S2 and split. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioNerds. Don't forget to check out the amazing illustration that Kareen prepared for y'all at www.cardionerds.com. And please share what made your heart flutter this week. Send us a clip to cardionerds at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, be a nerd and spread the word. And now a flutter moment. Hey, Cardio Nerds. I'm David Ambinder, a fourth-year medical student at the University of Maryland, passionate about all things medicine with special interest in urology. I love my brother, Dan, and I've been a listener of the show since the onset. It has been totally awesome and taught me so much. What made my heart flutter recently was celebrating my match into urology. Medical school is a long road, and the match process is incredibly grueling. I'm thankful for my wife and kids for going through the last four years, and a special mention to my brother, Dan, for keeping me sane during these last few weeks. I'm looking forward to celebrating with my peers in March after the general match. As sad as I am to leave the Baltimore area, the heart and the real most vital organ will always be connected. I love the show and I am excited to continue being the cardio nerds biggest fan. Boop.